Our world is full of the unexplained. It fills our histories and feeds our curiosity. And if there's one thing humans have always strived for, it's answers. But what happens when an answer can't be found? Well, we just have to create our own. Folk tales are born from mystery, and we use them to teach our children, hold on to our heritage, and to explain the unexplainable. But after so many years of stories, sometimes modern technology gives us more than we ever had access to. In 1959, a shocking incident stunned Russia, opening the way for folklore to take hold. But now, 62 years later, we think we have the answer. Let me tell you the tale of the Love Pass. In January 1959, a group of 10 students began on a cross-skiing trip to Mount Ototen, which is part of the Ural Mountains in Western Russia, and is the mountain range which divides Europe and Asia. The leader of this party was 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, who told his mother, concerned about him leaving for the trip, Just one last time, Mama. Just one last time. Igor Dyatlov began planning his expedition in 1958. He was studying at the prestigious Russian University Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is known as UPI. He submitted his adventurous proposal to the UPI Sports Club and was quickly granted permission to take his party on the cross-country venture. On the 23rd of January 1959, Dyatlov's group would begin their ambitious journey to ski 200 miles on a route that no Russian, as far as anyone knew, had taken before. The expedition was made up of eight men and two women. Igor was a fifth-year engineering student, an experienced hiker and athlete. He put together a team he knew would be up for the mammoth task. They consisted of fellow radio engineering student, 23-year-old Zenaida Kolmogorova, Yuri Krivnyshenka, Rustem Slobodin and Nikola Tabai Brignol were all 23 years of age and engineering students. Yuri Dushenka, 21, Alexander Kolovatov, 24, and Yuri Yudin, 22, and then finally, the youngest of the group, Lubmina Dubinia, aged 20, completed the initial party. All highly intelligent and athletic people, they were seen as a new generation of Soviet promise and optimism for the future. A few days before the beginning of their trip, the UPI unexpectedly added a tenth member to the party. Shemyon Zalataryov, was a 37-year-old World War II veteran, and mostly unknown to the rest of the group. With an old-fashioned moustache, tattoos, and steel-crowned teeth, he stood out from his fellow expeditioners, but was believed to be an asset to the group. The party left Sverdlovsk by train, with several of them hiding under seats to avoid buying tickets. The communal journals they left behind told us they were in high spirits, playing instruments, singing and laughing as they travelled across the country. Yuri Krovenyshenko had brought his mandolin and at one point was briefly detained by police for his musical disruption. At least five of the skiers had cameras and since retrieved pictures show a group of people full of life and excitement and about to embark on the adventure of a lifetime. On the 25th of January, 
they stopped briefly at a settlement called Visay. This is where Igor and Zenaida sent their letters home. The start of Zenaida's letter reads, We are going camping, the ten of us, and it's a great bunch of people. I have all the warm clothes I need, so don't worry about me. They spent the night there before hitching a ride with a truck to a logging base called the 41st Settlement. From there, the group hired a horse-drawn sled to carry their supplies and skis for a further 15 miles to an abandoned mining settlement. But the journey was becoming long and arduous. There was a constant battle against the terrain and fatigue, and on the 28th of January, it became too much for one member of the party. Zinaida wrote in her diary, Yuri Yudin is leaving us today. His sciatic nerves have flared up again, and he has decided to go home. Such a pity. And with that, the remaining nine battled on. The plan was to end in a village called Vizhai on the 12th of February, and to send a telegraph to the UPI Sports Club, informing them of their safe arrival. As the group continued their trek into the mountains, they were leaving behind civilization, Isolated in the enormity of the mountains and the forests. Well, isolated from people. The forests there are filled with reindeer, wolverines and lynx. Guides will inform you that although the skies can be beautiful and blue, the weather is unpredictable and can change at any given moment. On the night of February 1st, the group reached the eastern slope of Kolat Cycle, whose name, in the language of the indigenous Manzi people, can be interpreted as the Dead Mountain. Now, this is where things begin to become confusing. Up until this point, there had been a very clear path and rational decisions made. Igor Dyatlov was an experienced hiker and had been doing an excellent job in leading the group. But that night, they made a decision which, unbeknownst to the party, would be their downfall. Instead of making camp on the outskirts of the forest, which would have been a more sheltered campsite, the hikers ascended almost a mile further up the slope and stopped in an exposed area. Theories for this decision sit mainly in that the group had worked hard to gain height and were reluctant to lose this by going back on themselves. To counter the exposed nature of the campsite, they dug into the snow, allowing their tent to sit below snow level and offering them some shelter from the harsh winds which whipped across the surface of the mountain. They put up their tent, and they settled in for the night. The 12th of February came and went, and no telegraph arrived at the sports club. It wasn't uncommon for groups to be slowed on such enormous expeditions, and initially there was no alarm at the lack of communication. Reports of heavy snowfall across the mountain range had been coming in and would account for the expedition's slow going. But as days passed, family members began to panic. Frantic calls were made to the university by concerned parents, and on the 20th of February, an official search party was sent out into the wilderness. Almost one month after the group had pitched their tent, the search party stumbled across it. They saw it from a distance, a tent pole, sticking out of the snow on the slope. The rescuers made their way up towards it, not knowing what to expect. Pulling back the entrance, their confusion grew. Inside the tent, everything was tidy. 
Clothes and boots placed neatly, journals, cameras and wood for the stove, all laid out. There was even a plate of food ready to be eaten. But in stark contrast to this, the side of the tent had been slashed open by a knife, as if the people inside had been desperately trying to escape. The search party made their way back outside, looking for any sign of the hikers who had apparently fled the safety of the camp. It was then that they spotted the footprints. Several sets of them walking towards the tree line. On many of the footprints, you could distinctly make out the outline of toes. Most of the group had only been wearing socks. Some had even gone out with bare feet. They followed the footprints down the slope until they disappeared near the tree line. Baffled, the search party set up camp for the night. One searcher recalled that they drank from a flask that they had found at the abandoned tent. He raised the drink and went to toast the lost group's safety when a guide turned to him and said, Best not drink to their health, but to their eternal peace. The following morning, on the 27th of February, the first bodies were discovered. Yuri Doroshenko and the mandolin player Yuri Krivonoshenko were found at the trunk of a large sedatory. Both men were dressed only in their underwear, and Krivonoshenko had bitten off part of his own knuckle. And later that day, the grisly discoveries continued. Igor Dyatlov and Zenaida Kolmogorova were found further up the slope in the direction of the tent. It looked as though they had been attempting to make their way back to their campsite. All four bodies were sent to be autopsied and were found to have sustained bruises, cuts and abrasions. Some parts of Doroshenka and Krovonoshenka had been badly burnt and Kolmogorova was found to have a very large red bruise which ran up the side of her torso, almost as if she'd been hit with a baton. A couple of days later, the fifth body was found. It was Rustem Slobodin. He almost seemed to have been making his way back to the camp. His autopsy noted a minor fracture to his skull, as well as cuts and bruises similar to those found on the other bodies. His watch had stopped at 845 A homicide investigation was opened. What could have possibly made this group of experienced mountaineers slash their way through the side of their tent and flee into the devastating cold, half-dressed and shoeless? And where were the four remaining students? The answer to the latter question came three months later. In early May, the snow on the mountain had begun to thaw, a local manzi hunter and his dog were making their way through the forest when they stumbled across a makeshift snow den in a ravine. Pieces of ripped clothing were found strewn across the area and a second search party was called in. Using avalanche probes around the den, the four remaining bodies were uncovered. And if you thought the mystery was strange before, it was only just beginning. All four bodies were found together, 
around 250 yards from the tall cedar tree, Nikolai Thibault-Brignol had suffered serious head trauma. His skull had been fractured so badly that some pieces of the bone had been driven into the brain. Alexander Kolovetov had a wound behind his ear and his neck was twisted in a strange way. Ludmila Dubinia, the youngest of the party at just 20 years of age, and Shemyon Zalataryov, the eldest at 37, had suffered the most brutal injuries. The two bodies had crushed chests with multiple broken ribs. Dubinia was missing her tongue, and both were missing their eyes. There was also a massive haemorrhage in the 20-year-old's heart. A medical examiner later compared the wounds he had seen to that of an automobile moving at high speed. They looked as if they'd been hit hard by a car. As if all these facts weren't creating enough questions, examinations of their clothes deepened the mystery even further. A laboratory found that several items of clothing were emitting unnaturally high levels of radiation. A radiological expert testified that because the bodies had been exposed to running water for months, these levels of radiation must originally have been many times greater. On the 28th of May, 1959, the homicide case abruptly closed. The head prosecutor, Lev Ivanov, concluded that the incident was not that of murder, therefore a homicide case was not necessary. He ended his report with this sentence. It should be concluded that the cause of the hiker's demise was an overwhelming force, which they were not able to overcome. Understandably upset by this lack of an answer, the families of the students demanded further investigation. They even went as far as to suggest the deaths were related to the Russian military, but they were forcefully told, you will never know the truth, so stop asking questions. Fingers, of course, began to point in every direction. A military cover-up, UFOs, the indigenous Manzi people, and even a Yeti attack. And this is where folklore takes over. The idea that the brutal death of nine fit and intelligent people was purely the result of hypothermia is hard to swallow. Why would they have fled the tent in the first place? And how were the terrible injuries sustained? Another answer given by investigators was an avalanche. But the slope was considered too shallow, and how would four of the party be able to travel over a mile away from the tent on foot after sustaining such incapacitating injuries? The lack of answers is as infuriating now as it was then. Some of the first people to be blamed were those native to the region, the Manzi. Despite being key helpers in the search for the lost party, they became the prime suspects. They theorised that the group might have strayed onto sacred land, and the Manzi, enraged by this disrespect, had murdered them. In 2015, 56 years after the incident, a book was published suggesting that a group of Manzi hunters were high on magic mushrooms used in shamanic rituals and had gone berserk. But back in 1959, 
Police had investigated these claims, and after arresting several men and women, had concluded that the Manzi played no part in the mysterious deaths. They had been nothing but helpful and supportive of the Russian search. Another common belief at the time was that it was the fault of the military. A variety of theories are believed. One is that the party had accidentally strayed onto a weapons testing site, although after years of searching and the release of confidential documents, no evidence of this has ever been found. Another idea was that the group had stumbled into a CIA operation and, having seen things they weren't supposed to, had been assassinated by American spies. The spies had then created the mysterious carnage to throw off suspicions, but, as with the weapons testing theory, there has never been any evidence to substantiate this. It's at this point that we begin moving away from it being the result of humans or a natural occurrence, and the first place we arrive at are UFOs. In 1990, Lev Ivanov, the initial prosecutor for the homicide case, released an article he had always believed to be the truth. At the time, he was forbidden from releasing it with his report and told to keep his personal beliefs out of the investigation. But after retiring, Ivanov decided to share his findings. The article was entitled Enigma of Fireballs and suggested that the deaths were the result of powerful heat rays or fireballs which had come from a UFO. He claimed that many of the trees around the bodies had unusual burn marks on them, and the last photograph in Krivonoshenka's camera showed flares and streaks of light against a black background. By 1990, Ivanov was by no means the first to have suggested the culprits were not from Earth, but his addition added even more fuel to this fire. Possibly the most entertaining theory, and my personal favourite, is a Yeti attack. Many people argue that the distance covered by the students and their state of undress suggest they were fleeing something. The brutal injuries sustained by several members of the group could, perhaps, have been caused by a beast. The Yeti is known by many names across the world. The Abominable Snowman, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and the Ural Mountains have their own tales of a similar creature. A creature the Manzi call, Menkfi. The Menkfi is a forest spirit. It is described as a large humanoid creature covered head to toe in fur. Some reports suggest it resembles the appearance of a werewolf, but as far as the world of folklore is concerned... The Menkvi and the Yeti are one and the same. The Yeti is said to roam its native home in the Himalayas and has done so for hundreds of years. Alexander the Great demanded to see a Yeti when he conquered the Indus Valley in 326 BC. But local people informed him they were unable to present one because the creatures could not survive at that low an altitude. All kinds of unexplainable events are attributed to its existence. Reindeer and caribou attacks, mysterious sightings in the forests, foul smells with no discernible cause, and even giant footsteps spotted littering the mountainside on Everest. 
far more recently, in 2011, the Russian government took a decided interest in the legend of the Himalayan Yeti, and they set about to prove its existence. A researcher and biologist, John Bindanagel, claimed that he saw evidence that the Yeti not only exists, but also builds nests and shelters out of twisted tree branches. Following the conference, the group made a statement, announcing to the world that they had indisputable proof of the Yeti, and were 95% sure it existed, based on some grey hairs found in a clump of moss in a cave. As is the case with so many stories, it didn't take long for this proof to be declared a hoax. Jeff Meldrum, a professor of anatomy and anthropologist at Idaho State University, who endorses the existence of Bigfoot, said that he suspected the twisted tree branches had been faked. Not only was there obvious evidence of tall made cuts in the supposedly yeti twisted branches, but the trees were also conveniently located just off a well-travelled trail. Not exactly the location you would expect to encounter a yeti nest. Meldrum believed the entire Russian expedition was most likely a publicity stunt, designed to entice more tourists to the area. So with the theory of the Yeti still solidly fictitious, we are once again left none the wiser. Folklore has done its best to answer this mystery, but the facts remain. Something did kill those young hikers, and in 2020... 61 years after the Dyatlov Pass incident, scientists were very certain they'd solved it, and with the help of a very surprising source. Disney's hit movie, Frozen, was released in 2013. It used world-class animation and caught the attention of many viewers. One of those viewers was Johan Gaum, Gaum is the head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory in Lausanne, Switzerland. It has been his belief for many years that a delayed avalanche was responsible for the fateful incident on that freezing night in 1959. After watching Frozen, Gaum was blown away by the simulation of an avalanche used during an action sequence. The accuracy of the snowfall was astounding. He contacted the animators to ask them how they'd managed to achieve such lifelike results. He travelled to Hollywood, and together, using the film Snow Animation Code, combined with his own avalanche simulation model, Gaum created a much darker scenario. He simulated the impact an avalanche could have on a human body. Using research gained in the 70s, when General Motors used real human cadavers to calculate the damage a car crash could do to a body, Gaum was able to calibrate his impact models with impressive precision. He discovered that because the hikers had used their skis as the base of their beds, when the snow hit, it struck unusually rigid targets, increasing the impact. The models demonstrated that a 16-foot-long block of snow could easily break the ribs and skulls of people sleeping on a rigid bed. Injuries which would have been fatal if help was not immediately on hand, which on the side of an isolated mountain at night, it most definitely was not.
So why was the idea of an avalanche written off so early on? Most of the dismissal of the theory was based on the fact that the slope was deemed too shallow for an avalanche to have occurred, especially an avalanche which was big enough and moving with enough speed to have caused such serious blunt force trauma. But those simulations created by the researchers showed that the avalanche wouldn't have to have been big to cause immense damage. Its small size would also explain the lack of evidence found during the initial investigation. The snowfall continued, and by the time a rescue team arrived, any evidence would have been rendered invisible. When the party made a cut in the snow to pitch their tents, they unknowingly destabilised the slope. The diary entries found from that night spoke of very strong winds blowing down the mountain. Current research has suggested that winds such as these could easily have blown snow from higher up towards the campsite. This gradual increase on the unstable slope could have built and built until the weight became too much, eventually becoming dislodged and crashing into the sleeping hikers. This would also explain the long-debated nine-hour delay between the setting up of camp and the fatal incident. The avalanche hit the hikers as they slept, the ice and snow causing terrible damage to those closest to the impact point. In a frenzy, the team slashed their way out of the tent and stumbled into the night. They fled desperately towards the safety of the trees, and it was then the group became separated. Those with the worst injuries never moved from where they stopped running. They collapsed, succumbing to the trauma. It's likely that the further damage was caused by scavenging animals, taking their eyes and tongue. Those who had avoided the blunt trauma attempted to scramble their way back to the campsite, but being completely ill-equipped for the bitter and dangerous weather, hypothermia overcame them, and they were never able to travel the distance. The group of nine, full of life and hope, had been taken by the mountain. Sixty-two years later, we have an answer at last. But is it the answer we wanted? Probably not. Speaking to the National Geographic, researcher Johann Gaum said, people don't want it to be an avalanche. It's too normal. The unyielding scepticism, along with the haunting nature of the Dyatlov Pass incident, will keep conspiracy theories alive well into the future. What happens in the depths of the wilderness when there's no one left alive to tell the tale will always be a mystery. Stories to find the truth became research, and that research formed an answer. But we can never truly know. What happened that night in 1959 in the Ural Mountains? And for as long as there is mystery, there will be folklore. You've been listening to The Folklorist, a podcast written and narrated by me, Alana Cook. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe on wherever you choose to listen. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at 
the Folklorist Podcast. Thank you for listening.